This morning, I have the privilege of continuing a series that we started a couple of weeks ago. It's a series that we are calling Flawed. And uh, in this series, we're just trying to be honest about the fact that we are messed up and we are broken people who have issues and we struggle immensely. And yet, here's this glorious truth that shows up in Scripture that God uses us still, that God wants to meet us still, uh, that God is in no way daunted or repelled or intimidated by our issues, by our weakness, by our brokenness, but he shows up and he meets us in the midst of it. And to lean into this idea, we've just been looking at a number of different characters in the Bible uh, who were running hard after God, and yet as you look at their lives, you find they had deep issues and wounds and flaws just like us. And if God would use them, then he might just use us. As well. So this morning, we are going to look at a character in the Old Testament uh, by the name of Elijah. Um, the baddest and boldest with an A prophet in the history of the world, if you ask me. But we'll find that out here in a moment together. We are going to meet uh, Elijah. When Elijah uh, comes on the scene in the Bible, the nation of Israel is in a very, very dark time. It is at, under the leadership of a king named Ahab. Um, Ahab, when he comes into power, very quickly makes an alliance with a pagan king. And to seal the deal, he, he takes his daughter, the princess, from this pagan nation, and he marries her, a princess by the name of Jezebel. If you've ever heard her name, then you know her name has become synonymous with pure evil. And no sooner had this little power couple gotten together than the devilish duo started to go to work trying to figure out ways to eradicate the name of God from the nation of Israel and instead to replace it with the worship of her God, Baal. Baal, Baal, the God of rain, as they called him, the rider of the clouds. In fact, if you saw an image portrayed of Baal, it was a man standing on a bull with a... With a you know, kind of this club of thunder in one hand and this bolt of lightning in the other. And uh, Ahab and Jezebel pledge allegiance to Baal, but don't only do that, trying to figure out a way to be, ensure that Baal becomes the god of Israel. Ahab builds this temple and this shrine in the capital city of Israel to Baal and stops short of convincing Israel or making it a national law to follow um, this God named Baal. But in either case, this whole worship of Baal thing is starting to gain traction. And you can understand why Baal was widely worshipped in that region because in an area that was largely agricultural, if you are telling me that he is the God of rain, then I'm going to follow him. Because if he says rain and it rains and our economy thrives, our whole life and livelihood depends on the rains for our crops to grow. So yeah, I'm going to pledge allegiance to Baal. And many started to pledge allegiance to him. And you can understand why they were willing, man, to mutilate their bodies in order to get an early rain from Baal. You can understand why people started to sacrifice even their children in order to get an abundant rain from this God, Baal. Um, 
Needless to say, because of Ahab and Jezebel and their union, the Bible refers to King Ahab as the most evil king who ever, ever lived. God is not thrilled with the direction of Israel, so he raises up a prophet to address the issue a man named Elijah. We're going to meet him in 1 Kings chapter 17. If you have a copy of the Bible, you can join me there. We're going to have the verses up here on the screen for you to be able to follow along as well. 1 Kings chapter 17. And um, Elijah bursts onto the scene seemingly out of nowhere. Verse 1 says this, now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to King Ahab. We don't know much about Tishbe, this place where Elijah is from, except that it was a wooded area, largely uninhabited, the east of uh, the Jordan River. So it's no exaggeration to say this dude came out of the woodwork, but however he does it, We don't know much about him. We don't know his resume. We don't know his GPA. Don't have his references or anything. But the one thing we find out pretty soon is that he serves the God of Israel. And we also find out he's got a little crazy in him, as we'll see here in a moment. But anyway, somehow dude out of the woods manages to get an audience with King Ahab and I would assume his queen, Jezebel. Um, I'm guessing he says, I have a message from the Lord for the king. And Ahab is like, too curious. That sounds a little too appetizing not to bite. So he says, bring this guy in front of me. And before you know it, Elijah is standing in the throne room in front of Ahab and in front of Jezebel straight from the back woods. And now... Dangerous, devilish duo is staring at him. By the way, one facial gesture from Jezebel and his head goes rolling. This is a dicey moment that is set up here. But Elijah just goes right in. Doesn't introduce himself, you know, doesn't ask how the kids are. He just goes after it. This guy was bald. Um, 1 Kings 17, the second part of verse 1. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Wow! I serve the God y'all rejected, Anywho, ain't gonna rain till I say. And scene, the end. Y'all have a good day. This is the extent of their conversation. He stands in front of royal evil and delivers a message from God just the way God gave it to him. No disclaimers, no apologies, doesn't mince, doesn't soften his words. Yeah, I would imagine there was probably a little bit of silence there for a hot second. As the king and the queen look at each other, trying to figure out, what, what, what? Bushman over here, um, I'm sure they were trying to figure it out because now they have a variety of options. How do you respond to this? Do you laugh? Do you cry? 
or do you do what these two love to do so much? Do you kill? My guess is Ahab and Jezebel just crack up. <laughs> Jezebel's looking at Ahab. She's like, Jemima. It's my cousin Jemima. I know it. She's always messing with me. I'm the queen. I don't have time to mess around. But she's always playing these pranks. It was Jemima. Ooh, and she almost got me too. That was really good. You, sir, you were good. Really good with your bush funk, you know, and your whole serious tone. Ain't gonna rain till I say, ah, ha, ha, no way. I'm guessing they laughed, which probably ended up saving Elijah's life. I mean, what would you do? Come on, somebody, you know, knocks at your door, you know, dressed up as a Girl Scout cookies, saleswoman, whatever. You open the door. She's like, hey. Anyway, God told me to tell you, no internet in the whole America for a few years till I say. You wouldn't even check your phone. You would start looking around for cameras, like somebody is punking me, nice try, see you later. This is ridiculous. But even if Jezebel wanted to believe this, I mean, this doesn't make any sense. I'm sure they would at least be stuck on the whole do thing. Wait a minute, no do? <laughs> You're telling me for the next 700 some odd mornings, we're going to wake up and the dr grass will be absolutely dry? No moisture on the royal windows? Get out of here. That's scientifically impossible. It's never happened in history. I'm sorry. We can't take you seriously. Plus, if we take you seriously... What you would be announcing to us is a national crisis of epic proportions. We live in an agricultural community. If it stops raining for a few years, our economy crashes, our animals start to die, and people soon after that, in that case, we would need to start crying right now. You silly man. There's no way this is going to happen. Plus, on top of that, if we believe you, we're going to have to kill you. Because you are slapping Baal in the face. He is the God of rain. He rides the clouds. He determines whether it rains or whether it doesn't rain. Not you, little bushman, and your God. That's, this would have been a slap in the face to the devilish duo. Hashtag Jahab, right? There is no way they would have tolerated this. My guess is they just laugh hysterically like, ah, Jemima, nice try. Oh, my word, you almost got us too cold to get out of here. <laughs> no, really, get out, right? And then Elijah leaves. But in spite of all of that, what an unbelievable man of God. See, we have the luxury of, you know, hindsight. Elijah didn't have the luxury of hindsight at all. He had no idea how they were going to respond. All he knew, God told me to say something, and I said that something. This man was bold. Even when it meant standing in front of power, standing in front of evil, and risking his very life, Elijah just got up and said what God told him to say. And I just wonder if there's a remnant in our time of Elijah's who are willing to stand 
in hard places in front of powerful people and speak what God has said. I just wonder if there's a remnant in the room who have the spirit of Elijah's boldness, who are willing to stand at risk to themselves in front of the boss, in front of the kids at school, in front of my parents who hold my inheritance in their hand. And say what God has called us to say. I, I, I wonder if there's a remnant in such a politically correct environment for people in the church to say God has said and therefore we will not mince what he says. And we know we may get laughed at. We know some people may distance themselves. We know we put our lives at risk. But yet here we are. I wonder if there's a remnant of Elijah's. Elijah was an incredible man. He, as we'll see here in a moment, he obeyed God when God spoke. This would become the premier prophet. He became the face of the prophets in the Bible. When you speak about the prophets, you just say Elijah and him. He represented the prophets. This man followed so hard after God. This man walked so closely with God, by the way, that when his life on earth was over, God refused to let him die. Sent a chariot from heaven to Uber him home. How bad news is that? Elijah. Anyway, verse 2, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward, and head in um, and hide in the Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan. You would drink from the brook, and I have directed not the football team, but the birds, the ravens, to supply you with food there. So Elijah did what the Lord had told him. This was the rhythm of his life. And God spoke, and Elijah did. And God said, and Elijah moved. And the spirit stirred, and Elijah responded. So he went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, and he stayed there. The ravens, <laughs> they brought him bread and meat in the morning. And these ravens brought him bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from this stream. He drank from the brook. By the way, we often say around here something we believe. Our God loves to speak to his people. And Elijah was such a beautiful example of the way God tends to move. As he speaks to me, as his spirit stirs me, and I say yes, and I obey him, he gets louder, and he speaks more and more, and I hear him more and more clearly. This seems to be this rhythm in Elijah's life. He would hear God, and God would continue to lead him. Where some of us may wonder, how come God doesn't lead me? How come his spirit doesn't stir me? Well, he's still waiting on that one thing he told you three years ago. But I love this. Elijah obeys, and that was the pattern of his life. And also, I love how this story reminds us that if you continue to say yes to God, he invites you into these adventures that you couldn't possibly even begin to imagine. He invites you into the craziest and most insane stories. This is Elijah's life. He has breakfast and dinner catered by ravens. Who thinks up stuff like this? This is his story now. 
Like, hey, remember that one time when the ravens fed me? You have no idea the things God is going to do to supply and provide for you as you listen to his spirit and say yes to the places he's calling you to go. This is so beautiful. Ravens, I, this is, I'm sorry, I'm still stuck on this. Ravens are bringing in food. No, no, away with a sourdough. Bring me the pumpernickel and toast it. I don't know what his relationship with these birds were. But they were feeding him. This is awesome. And Elijah is hiding now because God's words have come true. They always do. Jezebel woke up the next morning and she got word and her laughing stopped. Uh, your highness, there is no moisture on the ground. Anywhere? Nowhere. Hmm. Jemima is good, but not that good. Um... That's serious. And then as the days roll on and the months pass, not a drop of rain. And so Ahab and Jezebel, they initiate an international manhunt. They pour every resource into tracking Elijah down. Find this bush guy. We want him dead. And the reason they wanted him dead was not because they believed him or his God. They wanted him dead because they believed he came in and he jinxed them. He said something that so offended Baal that Baal was now punishing the entire region because of Elijah. So if we can find him and spill his blood as a sacrifice to Baal, then Baal will say, let it rain and it will start raining again. But no matter how much they search, they cannot find him. For two years, God hides him in the home of a poor widow, and they can't find him despite their obsession. And even while Elijah is there, he continues to listen to God and see some incredible things happening in and through him. Unfortunately, while Elijah is in hiding, Jezebel loses her mind. She goes on this mission of slaughtering every prophet in the land who has any association with God. And her hope is that as she kills these prophets, they will either tell her where Elijah is or eventually it will just flush Elijah out because he's going to want it to stop. Or the blood of the prophets will appease the god Baal and, and Baal will chill out and it will start raining again. But in either case, there is this tragic bloodbath. One of the reasons her name became synonymous with evil. She wants this over. And then we flash forward a little bit to 1 Kings chapter 18. It says, verse 1, after a long time, in the third year, that's a long time, the word of the Lord came to Elijah again. Go, present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Here is that rhythm again. I don't know if this is the rhythm your life is in. The word of the Lord came to Elijah and Elijah went. God speaks and Elijah moves. He may not be privy to all the stuff that Jezebel is doing, but he knows the risk of presenting himself to the king and he does it anyway because God said this is an incredible man of God, the baddest prophet in all of history. Verse 16 of chapter 18 says this, if you look down a little ways. Obadiah, 
went to meet Ahab. Obadiah was a, a fearer of God in that region who also worked for King Ahab. In fact, at one point, he hears Jezebel is slaughtering the prophets, and Obadiah hides a hundred prophets in caves, and he takes care of them. And one point, when God tells Elijah, go back to Ahab, Elijah actually goes to Obadiah and tells Obadiah, go tell your boss I want to meet with him, and this is what ensues. So Obadiah went to meet with Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Verse 17, when he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? Not going to lie, Elijah. You've kind of made our lives a little bit uncomfortable over here. You've brought trouble on Israel by ticking off our God. And Elijah's response to the king is pretty much a grown-up version of, I know you are, but what am I? Verse 18. I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. Mm -mm, mm -hmm. No, you have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. How bold is this guy? Nope. You and your family did this. You abandoned the word of God, and you've led God's people after the Baals. And then the story turns and gets super strange. Elijah says, okay, but let's just settle this whole thing once and for all. Let's set up a battle of the gods. Winner takes all. If your God, Baal, wins, then he is God, and we will worship him. But if my God wins, he is God, and let's worship him. This is so awesome. Verse 19. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Bring all 850 of your prophets and let's rock and roll. And King Ahab, by the way, actually agrees to this. Which, by the way, tells me he legitimately believed Baal was God. He legitimately believed Baal would come and he would actually win. Verse 20, so Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. It's so about to be on. He actually believed Baal could win this. Um, but more than that, I think he just reasoned in his mind, the odds are so severely stacked against Elijah. Mount Carmel? Elijah, don't you know that Mount Carmel is the headquarters of the worship of Baal? We have home court advantage. And Elijah, there's 850 prophets versus your lone self. I would say our team is kind of stacked, and I'm also going to bring my army, so if anything goes down, I'll take you out. I think Ahab is reasoning this is a win-win situation, and in fact, I get to eliminate you in front of all of these people. And we can get back to our business. So national publication goes out, and Israelite men and women and children, they come in droves to Mount Carmel. I'm telling you, I wish I had this man's boldness, this man of God, this great prophet. 
Because when everyone gets there, he just calls out the entire nation. That's the first thing he does, verse 21. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. And by the way, this isn't even what we're trying to talk about this morning, but, but what a message for the church. I believe what Elijah stood up and said to the nation of Israel, Elijah would stand up and say to the church in our day, make up your minds. If Jesus is who he says he is, go all in with him. Follow him, heart and soul. When it's difficult and when it's easy, go all in with him. But if someone or something else is God and you believe that thing is going to save you, go all in with that. If you believe that your ultimate salvation is going to come through your political party, then go all in with that. If you believe that somehow success and then climbing the ladder is ultimately going to be the thing that brings you the deepest and most lasting satisfaction, go in with that. But if the God of the Bible is God, go in with him. But whatever you do, stop trying to play both sides. That's what he says to these people. Choose one or the other. So Elijah tells God's people that God's not going to tolerate this swiveling, this spiritual swaying. See, because here's what the Israelites were doing. They didn't really go in with Baal. <laughs> they would say, no, 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 no. We still worship God spiritually. But for our, our economic security, though, we'll pledge. You know, I mean, we'll offer a few sacrifices to Baal. I mean, for our wallets, Baal. For our souls, God. For our safety and security, our political party. But for our praise, Jesus. And Elijah's like, you keep swaying between these two worlds. And God will not endure this double mindedness. Verse 23. Man, here come the rules for the battle of the gods. It's about to get crazy. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut into pieces, cut it into pieces and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. Then you Call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. In other words, let's get ready to rumble. Verse 25, Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, you guys first. Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God. But do not light the fire. Ooh. 
So they took the bull, given them, and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And then so they danced around the altar they had made. And then around lunchtime, Elijah starts to trash talk them a little bit. Verse 27. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he's a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought. Or busy. Or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. Maybe he went nighty-night. Or pee-pee. Verse 28. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. I'm just telling you, choose your God carefully. At the end of the day, will your God show up? Or is it just going to cost you everything? I sacrificed my family. I sacrificed my friendship going after because I believed that it would... Will it show up? From morning to night, I just, the, the, the grind, the grind, the grind, because I believe that if I continued to do that, that somehow I would accomplish and I would finally, will your God show up though? Choose your God very wisely. Verse 30, Elijah. He said to the people, come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. I love that. The altar on the mountain of Baal. Elijah took the 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of seed. Verse 33, he arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid the bull on the wood. Then he said to them, hey, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. What? Then he said, do it again. He said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. This is a bold, do bad dude. Verse 35, the water ran down around the altar, and even filled the trench, as if the odds weren't stacked enough against Elijah. He has this altar rebuilt, and this bull drenched with water. Twelve large jars worth of water. And by the way, you can already start to see the signs of revival. An altar is being rebuilt to God on the mountain of Baal. But more than that, I read this a few times and I'm like, wait a minute, what? Twelve large jars worth of water during a famine? 
this water come from? You know what I suspect? The people of Israel came up the mountain and brought a little bit of water to sustain them through the day. And Elijah says, pour that water out on this altar, one of the most valued possessions you have. And this became this returning to God, this sign of faith in what God might do. And these people just pour water and they drench the entire altar. Verse 36, Woo! At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I've done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord. Answer me. So these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. What was that prayer? 30 seconds? Less? No song. No dance. No self-mutilation. No yelling. Just a plea. God, please show up. God, please show off. And God was like, okay. And then, we didn't start the fire. Boom. God's like, I started the fire. Check this out. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice. Okay. The wood. Okay. The stones. What? I didn't know stones could burn. And the soil. And also just licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, you better believe they fell prostrate and cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And I believe, I believe that, I believe that God just won. I, this is awesome. God knocks Baal out cold. And the people begin to worship, chanting, the Lord is God. And by the way, if you have any question, let me put an end to your mystery. This is how all of history is going to end. Jesus, victorious, and every knee bowed, and every tongue confessing, you are Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. The only question is on which side of the battle are you going to be? Woo, this is so good. Elijah, the man of God, he's seen some things, but this one right here. Anyway, it's the Old Testament. So he kills all 850 of the prophets. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and then he turns to King Ahab, and he says, now it can rain. Drops the mic, and he rolls out. <laughs> Elijah, woo! I'm telling you, for those of you who haven't yet named a son, just take this name, put it on the front of the list. Baddest, boldest prophet ever. And then, the story gets really, really good. Ahab, he goes home and he spills all the tea. 
tells Jezebel all the things that had happened, because apparently she didn't think the trip was worth making, and uh, he explains to her why her pet prophets haven't come home. Um, she loses it. She is so furious, she immediately sends a death threat to Elijah. She swears, I am going to kill you within 24 hours. Elijah hears the threat from this lady, and his response is like, ooh, I'm scared. No, but for real. His response, look at it, verse 3, chapter 19 now. Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. Boldest, baddest, what? Elijah is so terrified, he runs and he dumps his servant, reasoning in his mind, I don't need a servant if I'm dead. He just stood up against 850 men and the king, and now one lady makes a threat and the dude falls apart. He just saw fire fall from heaven. You saw that. You were there. Fire fell from heaven, and now he's afraid of one lady's threat. I don't know about you, but for me, this is where the story gets good, because isn't that one of the best pictures of the truth we're trying to lean into in this series? We are broken people and God will use you still one moment I'm on fire for Jesus and the very next day I'm terrified of what two people at my workplace may think about me I love Jesus but I'm just really scared right now This is incredible. Even the boldest prophet in history had episodes and episodes of fear. I remember how fearless I was in saying yes to God in our adoption journey. Woo! And then I remember how terrified I felt, feeling like our family can't handle this. We can't handle the weight. We're going to mess this thing up. We can't do it. We cannot do it. I love Jesus. Just a little scared. I can share the gospel on a stage in front of thousands of people. And I'm at the U.S. Open and one dude asks me, so do you believe that the, the, like the God of the Bible is the only God or that the, the many gods are valid? And I'm like feeling the need to change the topic. And this dude has to tell me, no, seriously, back to that though, about God. I love God. I'm a little scared, though, in this situation. I know at least one person in this room who travels between faith and fear. If we're honest, there's at least one other person. Hopeful one day and then feeling hopeless the next, and people are looking at you like, what? Weren't you just encouraging me in the Lord yesterday? I love the room the Bible makes for my struggle. Oh, man, this gets good. Verse 4. 
While he himself kept going, running from the lady, a day's journey into the wilderness, he came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. This is the Bible. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. Isn't the Bible good? Elijah, the man of God, prophet of God, the embodiment and the face of the prophets is in a dark depression under a tree. Less than three days after fire fell from heaven. Here he is. And can we be honest? This is more than just a dark depression. He went from victory to suicidal in less than 70 hours. God, make it stop. I don't want to do this anymore. And I'm just asking, have you ever been there? A sadness so deep, you don't feel like you can keep moving. Just asking, have you ever been there? A sadness so deep, the only thing you feel you have strength for is to sleep. This is Elijah. I love how real and how raw the Bible is. And the church, I think, could learn something from this. I didn't come to church to say much, but I did come to say in the economy of God, there is room for your struggle. I love how the Bible includes this part of Elijah's story. I love how God didn't consider his depression taboo. I love how God didn't consider his depression a stigma. He put it right in the story, right after his fire came down from heaven. I love the Bible doesn't shame, it doesn't indict this great prophet. I love, too, how Elijah knows God enough to know that God can handle the fire and the same God can handle my fear and the same God can handle my forget this whole thing, I'm done. So he brings it to God and he talks to God about what is going on. In the economy of God, there is room for your struggle. God just wants you to bring it to him. I love this. Second part of verse 5. This is crazy. Just say, brace yourself. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals, and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and then lay down again. I'm not going to lie to you. I was so emotional reading over this. I had to read it a few times, like, Lord, please help me not to fall apart in church. But maybe that wouldn't be a bad thing. This is so beautiful. Do you know 
how God responds to Elijah's depression? He makes him breakfast. This has to be where the phrase breakfast in bed comes from. An angel wakes Elijah up from his deep sleep and offers him bread baked fresh over hot coals. I just, I couldn't, man. I'm like, God, you are too, are you serious? I could have sent ravens. You know I can do that. But I thought I'd deliver this one myself. Study the Old Testament, and you see the angel of the Lord shows up. The angel of the Lord, it's usually speaking about him. I'm going to just take care of this one by myself. And it's over hot coals. Do you know that making bread over hot coals takes time? It takes a little bit of time. While Elijah is sleeping in this place of deep sadness, heaven is sitting with him, just letting the bread bake. I don't know who this is for, but when all seems dark, he's just baking. Just preparing what you need for this season that you're in. And more than that, just being true to his promise, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. I will sit with you in the valley just like I stood with you on the mountain. I don't know who needs to know it, but your sadness does not repel God. He sits with you in it. Can you even smell the dough? I love how verse 6 ends, man. This is so good for the church to read. It says at the end of the verse that Elijah, <laughs> he wakes up, he eats um, some bread, <laughs> and then he goes back to sleep. And the church collectively says, what? I don't understand. So, so God showed up and he made you breakfast miraculously and you're not fixed. <laughs> like, no. I'm encouraged. Oh, no, now I feel sad again. I'm going back to sleep. And he went right back to sleep. This is the Bible. And there is room for that journey of struggle in the economy of God. The struggle is real, church. We're the ones who are obsessed with fixed. So are you fixed yet? Oh, you're still sad. Okay, well, uh, what can we do to fix it? This is, this is so stirring to me. Our struggle and our stuff is this journey with good days and, and hard days and all the in-between days. And, and you remember you had a good day. In fact, you had a string of good days. And you started to believe what the church sometimes say, like, I may be fixed. And then somebody said something. And you're like, oh, 
going back to sleep now. And there's room for that. Because you've been feeling unspiritual. Because you come to church on Sunday and you feel like, whoa, awesome. By mid-morning Monday, I'm going night-night. I don't feel good. And there is room for that. There is room for that. All right. Verse 7, chapter 19. The angel of the Lord came back a second time. He, he just keeps coming back. He's, he's just going to keep coming back, I'm telling you. Touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, strengthened by that food, that provision. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 10. He, Elijah, replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with a sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Okay, first of all, the fact checker is going off right about now. And so is my microphone, apparently. Um, Elijah has lost his perspective, man. Um, Israel just experienced a revival on Mount Carmel. Obadiah just told you that at least 100 prophets who he has kept alive. And the prophets of Baal have been put to death. Elijah is sounding off to God, and it's not even making a whole lot of sense. And so God is like, I'll tell you what, buddy. That's not God's response. God says, hey, hang on. I'm coming down. <laughs> this is so awesome. Verse 11, the Lord said, go and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. I don't know if you knew, but he is not repelled by your episodes. He'll come close. Even while you're sounding off and you've lost a little bit of perspective, but you were honest with him. Second part of verse 11, here it comes. And a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in, an earthquake, in the earthquake. After the earthquake came fire like on the mountain, but the Lord was not in the fire. Not this time. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, hey, talk to me again. What are you doing here, Elijah? God will meet you in your struggle. And when he shows up, do not believe the lie that is going to come with thunder or it's going to come with an earthquake or it's going to come with fire to somehow condemn. He comes in tenderness. And he says, now tell me this thing again. You've already told it to me a couple of times, but talk to me. Talk to me. And so Elijah gives him the whole spiel again and God listens to him. Verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Amhazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel, Maloha, Mahola, uh, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu 
will put to death any who escape the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escape the sword of Jehu. Um, yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. I, I love this. God says, anyway, so um, you may be down, but you're not done. I have some work for you. Look at me. I'm a mess. I'm sad. I'm not happy about very much of anything. I don't like life right now. I don't, I know, I get it. But I have some assignments for you to do. And oh, Elijah, I will go with you. And then you're going to feel sad again and I'll sit with you. But this does not stop the work you have to do on my behalf. And he gives him these glorious assignments. And even in the midst of the sadness, you see Elijah's like, okay. And he obeys God and they keep journeying together. I will walk with you still. I will show up still. I will use you still. It is not over. I don't need you to be fixed. I just want you to be willing. And then I love what God tells him at the end of this. He says, oh, by the way, um, there are 7,000 others Man, I I wish the church were a place where we preached this message. Because the enemy will try and convince you in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your sadness, in the midst of some of the darkest thoughts you have, it's just you. And I love that God tells him, no, there's 7,000 others. I wish this were a place where we said, oh my goodness, I struggle too. There's a few hundred of us and we're all wrestling with these deep areas of darkness. We're all wrestling with these deep areas of sadness. We all go through these episodes. We all have these 40 days of strength and then we feel it again. This is just the life we are living and God tells him, you are not alone and we're not done. We are in this thing together. One of the devil's best tricks convince you it's just you struggling no one else understands god is like no i have a whole army of folks who understand weakness and struggle can we just be honest in our missional communities in our connection groups and in our friendships about who we really are um then there's this verse that shows up in luke chapter 22 verse 41 You need to see this as we wrap. Um, He withdrew, he being Jesus, about a stone's throw beyond his disciples. He knelt down and prayed. Oh, what's Jesus doing? Well, he's about to go to the cross, and he is having a dark episode. Jesus, hey, you can parse this theologically however you want, and you are going to get to the same place I'm getting to. He's having a dark tough time and he says father if you are willing take this cup from me I don't want to do this but in the spirit of Elijah I will do it if you say so but I just need to be honest with you about where I am right now yet not my will but yours be done why is Jesus saying that not my will but yours so he's saying what you want yeah what I want humanly I'm struggling right now. Verse 43, an angel from heaven appeared to him. Have you seen this before? And strengthened him. 
And then being in anguish, Jesus prayed some more. Wait, Jesus wasn't fixed. No. The strength he got was actually the strength to pray even more and to be more honest and to pour his heart out to his father and say, this is where I am. And you know as well as I do that at the end of the day, Jesus got up and said, if you say so, and went to the cross. And as a result, our incredible hope. Ours is a God church who simply wants us to acknowledge our struggle and our weakness and come to him and say, this is who I am. And I believe his is a heart for a church that is honest with each other about the struggles we face and the darkness we experience and some of the places we go. But somebody needs to know your sadness does not repel him. He sits with you even in that place. And gives you the strength for what you need. And some people feel discouraged. Like, I've been struggling with this for four years. Yeah. And God will show up and give you the strength to maybe make it 40 days and then another. Or four days and then another. He is so good. And in the midst of that, he continues to invite us to obey him. And to say yes to him. Still, he's not done with us. He wants to come close. If we're done with hiding and bring ourselves to him. And I'm going to pray. And then if there are any elders in the room, if you guys would come up front and any small group leaders who are willing, come up front. If somebody just wants to pray with someone and agree with someone or, or just wants to say, man, I'm in a tough place right now and I could use some people around me, we would encourage you to come on up even as we are dismissed. So Father, thank you. For the God you are on the mountain. Thank you for the God you are in the valley. Thank you for the ways you meet us in the dark caves of sadness. And thank you for the ways that you continue to use us and journey with us because of Jesus, our ultimate prophet, our great example. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.